my wife and I had the opportunity to go up to fall retreat uh, for a little over a day. And I, I just want to tell you, let me give you a report real quick. The junior and senior hires up there have a lot of energy. They're also dealing with God in some really cool ways. It's been, it was exciting to be up there and, and to watch sixth graders all the way through seniors deal with God in some different ways. And there were a couple of things that really stood out to me, but I want to, I want to hone in on one of those because I, I think you'll see the, the uh, juxtaposition of the situation that they're in. And I was reminded of some studies that I, that I had read in the past on the issue of purpose and the issue of depression and suicidal ideation. And so here's what the deal was. They found that people who could do anything they wanted, whenever they wanted, however they wanted, actually struggled with depression, suicidal ideation at a much deeper level than people who seemed to have a very focused purpose. In other words, people who could get up every day and decide when they were going to do what, how they were going to do what, whatever, they struggled with purpose in a way that people who knew what they were going to do were committed to that and didn't have choices, didn't struggle. It was a really interesting thing. Now, in in terms of Western Christianity, there were catechisms that were developed. And these catechisms were put in place so that people could understand their theology. They could understand it in practical ways and live it out. And in most Western catechisms, very interesting, the first question is, why do I, what is the chief purpose of humankind? It was to glorify God. That's number one. First question. Isn't that really interesting that the first thing that we would want people to know is that they have a purpose and their purpose is to glorify God and they can do that a variety of ways whether you're a farmer or whether you are an electrician or a teacher like you can glorify God and that's the first thing that they learn. Now I bring this up in this context because we have a group of kids who primarily uh, are getting a different message then they have purpose. It's a message that has permeated our culture that things just kind of accidentally happened. That there were these, I don't know, random events that took place. And in the randomness of these events, we're here today. And in in the midst of us being here today, we really don't have a purpose except for to consume and take things and mm, do what we want. So that's, that's a message that the world, and I recognize that that's a simplification, but that's the bottom line. That's the message that they're hearing from the world, juxtaposed to God created you with a purpose, and God has a plan in that purpose, and in that place where God has a plan, he has a direction for you and a way to live that out. Do you see the juxtaposition? And now these kids are up at a camp where they're, they're getting the gospel fed to them, you guys. I mean, it, it's fun. It was fun to see. Like I said, lots of energy, also lots of tears, also lots of excitement, also lots of discussion, also lots of follow-up. And God is doing some cool things. But these kids are, are going from, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think this is true. I think I actually do have a purpose. 
And I want to tell you that that's at the heart of the message that we're going to hear today in Romans chapter 1. As you're turning to Romans chapter 1, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to dig into a series that I think uh, is going to be life-giving. Would you join me as we pray? Holy Spirit of God, as we come to this place today, I ask, and uh, really I beg, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. That as we navigate uh, our culture, our lives, our, our inward thoughts, our intimate thoughts, as we navigate that compared to your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. That we wouldn't be so caught up that we lose ourselves in the freedoms that we often have. But Lord, that we would find ourselves committed to you and in you. That we would be able to glorify you in the things that we do and in the things that we say. And that in your word, you would, you would just in a very real way give us an ability to live it out. That it wouldn't just be head knowledge that we would be gaining today, but also a transformation. Not behavior modification, Lord. We're not asking for that. The world has seen plenty of that where we just do or say the right things for the sake of doing and saying the right things, Lord, and, and the fruit of that is folly. So, Holy Spirit, I ask that there would be transformation even here, even today, for your good glory. And it's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. And all God's people said what? Amen. Okay, I was making sure you were awake. Good job. Uh, so, Pastor Matt and I, as we sat down and started to talk through really what God seems to be moving uh, in our hearts, not just in our hearts, but really in, I would say, in, in the church today, uh, we started to l- kind of digging in. And we put together this seven-year plan, and it's, it's written on paper because paper's flexible. It's not chiseled in stone, right? So uh, we recognize there'll be some There'll be some uh, deviations from that initial plan. We recognize that and love that. But a, a part of that is getting to know the Word of God. And we want to dig into the Word of God and, and dig into the treasures that God's Word has for us because we believe that in those treasures there is life. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, we can live that life out. We, we, believe, uh, we believe, we know that we know that we know that that is true. So we're in Romans. Now, you may be looking at this uh, road map here and thinking, did he just say seven years? Oh boy. Uh, we're not going to be in Romans for seven years. <laughs> we're going to do it, this in chunks. And so this first chunk, we're talking about how the gospel transforms. And through the course of the next few years, we'll be in Romans a couple different times and you'll see this map pop back up and we'll be in a different location on the map. I share that to say, that we're going somewhere in all of this. And we believe the Lord is calling us to discipleship in a way that is transformative. Not transformative in in terms of behavior modification, as my prayer uh, uh, suggested, but rather transformation that is spiritual and is enduring. And we know that that happens through the revelation of God's word and living that out. So we're going to find ourselves in God's word. Today, as we jump into Romans, I want to share just a couple of things as we're getting there. There was a man, his name was Saul. 
uh, as Saul grew up, he got education that was both Roman and Jewish. He trained under a rabbi who, who was uh, very popular and demanded a lot. Saul becomes a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, as he refers to himself. Now, what that means in his culture, not from ours, might be a little bit different. So for Saul of Tarsus, this Pharisee, he would see himself much like evangelicals would see ourselves. We hunger for the word. We study the word. We want to live out the word of God. We want to follow uh, uh, God's word and, and mine out the treasures of God's word and live in that place. That's, what they, that's, what they, uh, that's the way they saw themselves, but that's not always the way that it translated. Oftentimes, they, they were caught up in uh, man-made rules. And that's where we see it in our culture. Generally, from the New Testament, we, w- we would look through that lens. But that's only a piece of the bigger picture. Saul, in learning God's word, most likely... You could have said something to Saul like, how many times does the word sparrow come up in the, uh, in the scriptures? And he would be able to not just give you a number, but also tell you the verse ahead and the verse behind it. That was a part of the practice that Saul grew up in. Having said that, he was also very zealous for the word of God. And so he believed certain things about the scriptures. And one of those early beliefs is that the Messiah was coming and that Jesus was not the Messiah. And because he believed that Jesus was not the Messiah, he wanted to get rid of all of the followers of Yeshua, of Jesus. And so that's what he did. He began to get rid of them, overseeing the deaths of servants like Stephen. And I tell you this because there is this moment where Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus, the supernatural moment that changes his life where all of his studies and the reality of God, Jesus, the Savior of humankind, intersect. And it makes sense. And there's a transformation, a spiritual transformation that comes along the information that he has and over the course of the next few years begins to be infused with what he understands and knows to be true. And then lived out. Saul becomes a leader uh, in the early church. Writes much of the New Testament. His name is later called Paul. So we refer to him as Paul. The little one. (laughs) Uh, So Paul is being transformed. And Paul, as a leader of the church, writes an epistle or a letter to the church in Rome. Now, he does this in about 57 A.D., The reason that that might matter to you is that this is approximately 27 years after the resurrection. So in 30 AD is the resurrection, 57 AD is now uh, the church is growing and blossoming in Rome. I say growing and blossoming kind of tongue-in-cheek because they're also meeting in catacombs. Uh, they're being persecuted, and the early days of persecution have begun. It's going to climax in the next 10 years, nine years, uh, with Nero. But what is beginning to happen is this. In 54 AD, followers of Jesus, followers of the way, 
uh, are separated from the synagogue. So up to that point, the church was gathering also in the synagogue. They were worshiping together, uh, uh, followers of Jesus and Jews in a synagogue. In 54 AD, they said, no, wait a minute. Mm -mm, Nope. (laughs) We don't believe what you believe. We don't think that Jesus is the Messiah and you need to get out of our synagogue. Okay, so they do. And now they have these these formed communities, these churches uh, that are growing, these congregations that are growing. And they're not just Jews, but they're also Gentiles. So that's another piece of this. At the same time, Rome has recognized religions. They recognize Judaism. While Christianity was meeting in the synagogue, there was a little bit of a pass. They're not meeting in the synagogue anymore. And they're saying, well, wait a minute. Who, is, who are these groups of Jews that are meeting, that believe in Jesus the Messiah? And the Jews said, no, wait a minute. Uh-uh. Those aren't Jews. Uh, we're Jews. They believe that there is this Jesus who is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's above the emperor. And they said, well, we can't have this. And they said, yeah, I know. You should do something about that. And they began to go around and, and start to persecute the church. In many cases, it cost their life. In some cases, the persecution was so intense that people left the church altogether. Close people. All you have to do is recant, and we won't kill you. We won't take you to the Colosseum. We won't crucify you. We won't set you on fire. Okay. And many people walked away from their faith because of the persecution. Understand that. Additionally, this, this group of people who are following Jesus as the Messiah in the capital of the Roman Empire are starting to see a little bit of growth, and a lot of it is underground. And Paul is going to give the, the largest epistle to this group of believers in Rome to help work through theological issues and practically how they can live it out. And in fact, uh, through this, they're going to be challenged in ways that kind of set a course for the church. Having said that, I want to put some questions in your head. Uh, I want you to be chewing on these questions as we walk through these scriptures together. The first question is, how do we see ourselves? In other words, when you think of yourself, what are some terms that you use? That's the first question that I'd like you to chew on. And then let's compare that to Scripture as we walk through this together. Secondly, what are we committed to do? Oftentimes, in Western Christianity, we're relegated to information. Christianity has never just been about information. It's a transformational life that produces fruit to produce Fruit is action-oriented. What are we committed to do? And then where is our power? Is our power in influence? Is it in money? Is it in title? Where, is, where does our power come from? We're going to be addressing that as we walk through the scriptures together today. This is an outline of where we're going. In the first section, we'll see how Paul is called by God. We're going to see how Paul is committed to the Romans and the church in Rome specifically. Uh, And then we're going to see how he's convinced of the power of the gospel. And that issue of the power of the gospel really informs us of life today. 
I hope you're ready. I hope you're ready to buckle in because we're, we're in for a ride and this is going to be a lot of fun. Let's jump in right away. So the first section, Paul is called by God. We're going to look at Paul's identity, the gospel's identity, and the Romans' identity. I'm, I have my Bible in my hand partly because my, my eyesight is horrible. Uh, I think I can see everything just fine, but we'll find out here in just a moment. If, uh, if things get blurry and I go to my Bible, you'll know why, all right? Okay, just get glasses, Kenny. I know, I know. Stop. All right, here we go. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Pause there. Servant. It's an interesting phrase. And part of the problem that we have is a word that is used. A word that is used that identifies an institution. An institution that was used in the Roman Empire in a very fluid sort of way. In a way that the institution isn't really going to connect exactly with us. In fact, we're going to have, we're going to tap the brakes probably even as we jump into this. Let me explain. The word doulos is used there for servant. It can also mean slave. It can also mean bond servant. Uh, It can also just be used generically as the term servant, someone who who serves dinner even. But the idea is used uh, in this very fluid way of an institution that is used in the ancient world. So, a servant, as I said, could be somebody who serves other people, uh, a meal, that sort of thing. But it was mostly used in this respect. If somebody owed money, if they were indebted, then they would then serve that person for seven years to pay off that debt. We sometimes combine that term with slavery, but it's like slavery light. At the end of at the end of the seven years, they were set free. There were rules associated with that. They weren't allowed to, to uh, beat and abuse. Those servants had a certain amount of dignity. There's another way that a person could enter into this um, servitude, this doulos, uh, and that was by way of birth. So if there were conquered people and that conquered people were then made to be slaves in someone's home, There wasn't any getting out of it unless they bought their way out of it, if they could buy their way out of it. And so they would be born into this slavery. And generally, we think of slavery with that term. So here's the problem that we have. The word servant there is a translator's decision. So a translator might use a word like servant. They might use bondservant. They might use slave. And it depends it depends on the, the context. And sometimes that's, that context is very uh, specific and defined, and other times it's a little more fluid. But it's a translator's choice, and that's really tricky in culture. So let me explain this. Paul, when he's introducing himself to this group of people that are gathered, most likely in catacombs, in hiding, He refers to himself as a servant, as a doulos, a slave. The way that he uses this throughout Scripture is consistent. And the way that he uses it is more like the idea of slave, not a bondservant who was there for seven years to serve and then gets out. He is saying that this Christ Jesus owns him. He has a debt that he can't pay back, and he is his slave. What? 
Christ Jesus wants, he will do. Now, also, he is a Roman citizen. So the fact that he connects himself with this phrase is ridiculous. It would have stood out to the ears of the first century hearers. Hmm. Paul is saying that he is at the bottom rung. He is a servant. He is a slave. And he is a slave to Jesus. But Paul also realizes that we're all a slave to something. We're a slave to sin and death, or we're a slave to God and his freedom. We're going to be a slave to something. Paul says that he chooses this. And it's clarified in the next clause when he says, called to be an apostle. The word called here has the idea of not just a call, like, hey, follow me, but also received. So there is, a, a, if you want to think of it as a phone, I, I still do this, right? I'm of this generation where we do this. My kids are of this generation when they talk about phones of this. Uh, okay, so I'm this guy. Um, it would be like, okay, my phone's ringing. I'm receiving it. That's called. That's the word. I'm picking it up. I'm receiving this call. So uh, a servant of a slave of Christ Jesus called, and I receive it, to what? Apostle. Uh, the term apostle has some, uh, it's gotten a little fuzzy in our culture. What does it mean? Well, the Latins, when they used it and translated it, they use a word that we've Anglicanized and we say missionary now. So that might give you a little bit of a clue of what the term apostle means, a missionary. Uh, but it's basically a sent out one. It's someone who's sent out. They go out. Paul is saying he's a slave of Jesus and he's sent out. He received that call. He, he got the call, received the call. That's what Paul is. That's his identity. And then he says, set apart for the gospel of God, that this call that I'm sent out for is for the gospel of God. Whatever we see Paul doing, it is for the gospel of God. If you have your Bibles, underline the word gospel. That's an important term. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. And that's the introduction to today's sermon. No, I'm just kidding. Like, oh, this is going to be seven years. Okay. Let's keep going. Verse 2. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So this gospel, the identity comes from uh, uh, people that have been ordained by God. The the Holy Spirit uniquely spoke through, written down in the Scriptures. Holy Scriptures, we got them. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. He physically showed up. This is not just this spiritualized a ghost that appeared. It's not like this Christ that showed up, but physically Christ showed up and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now watch the transition here. So we see Paul's identity. We see where the gospel has come from. The Old Testament given to prophets, Uh, written down for our use, understood that way. It's received because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We see it, and now this call is continuing, and he picks it up in verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. The term grace, you could use it as an acronym. Uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. If you want to do it that way, you could also say grace another way. You could say it like uh, Uh, It's receiving something that we didn't deserve, a good thing that we didn't deserve. Could be that. An apostleship 
So we are also sent out ones to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Obedience, again, action-oriented. Verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. There is a calling. God's calling. You belong to Jesus. Pick it up. Yes, I receive that. Yes, I receive that. So we see that in this first section. Called by God, we see Paul's identity, we see the, the gospel's identity, we see Romans, uh, the Roman church's identity, that they too have received this grace, just like Paul has received this grace. They too have received this apostleship being sent out. Let's look at the next section. Two, uh, here's an interesting piece. Paul is going to identify uh, the saints. I grew up in a faith system that said to be a saint, uh, there had to be a miracle that was identified, that was confirmed, uh, and you had to be dead. So uh, if you were a saint in the faith system that I grew up with, there had to be a confirmed miracle, and you had to be dead, then you could be a saint. You could be Saint Kenny if that was true. Uh, But it had a whole big process. I think we're going to see from biblical terms that that might look a little bit different from Scripture. He thanks God for their faith. So again, he acknowledges them. He longs to spend time with them. Maybe a love language produced there. And he's indebted to them and all the people. Let's jump right in. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. Just stop there. Can you imagine? You're in a catacomb in Rome. Uh, That's where they keep dead people. You're in a catacomb in Rome. And you're hiding from people who are, who are willing to tell on you. Some of those people might be your family. They might be your neighbors. They might be people who used to come to those meetings. And to rat you out means you're going to be persecuted. You could at least be thrown in jail. You will certainly be tormented and tortured if you are thrown in jail. And it could also cost your life. You could be put in the Colosseum by which you would be uh, consumed by an animal or for sport by someone else. Do you think they felt loved? Do you think loved is a term that they would use in general of their current situation? But Paul says, you're loved by God and called to be saints. You are the holy ones set apart for his work. That The word saints there is connected to the idea of holiness, of separation. We use a Bible term, sanctification. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Pause there. Paul, this guy who's known throughout the world as somebody who God got a hold of, did a miraculous thing in his life, and is now going around encouraging churches. This Paul, who was a part of the leadership of the early church, is saying that he's encouraged because of them. Oh, what would that do to your soul in that situation? I thank Jesus because of you. He continues on, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, underline gospel again, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It's part of his plan early on to go see the church in Rome. 
For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, and then he clarifies what he means, that we may be mutually encouraged. Pause there. Love the word encouraged. Uh, I, I, I love to see encouragers. You know what an encourager is? It's someone who gives courage. It's not just somebody who says nice things to you. They actually give you courage. That's what an encourager is. That's what the word means, to give courage. And Paul is saying, I can't wait to be there. I think I have something for you that will encourage your faith, and I think you have something for me that will encourage my faith. It will give me courage to stand strong. By each other's faith, both yours and mine, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. I'm not intending to neglect you, he's saying. But thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. And then he says this. I am under obligation. Underline it. Obligation. The term obligation means debt or debtor. I am a debtor is what he's saying. I am in debt too. Why does this matter? Well, it matters because of what I said earlier. Remember, a part of this, this institution uh, of slavery that is as much as serving as it is actual lifelong slavery, that, that spectrum, he's saying that I owe you a debt. I have a responsibility to pay that debt. Culturally speaking, uh, you, you couldn't just continue on without paying a debt. You have a responsibility to enter into it. Paul is saying, I am willing, I have a debt. I'm willing to enter into uh, this situation where I pay this debt. We're going to see in just a moment what he means by that. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. If we were down south, we'd say, all y'all. Everybody. And this is how he goes about paying it. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. How does he pay it? He pays it with preaching the gospel. Living it out and speaking it in word. He is a debtor. To pay the debt is to speak the gospel. I ask you to underline gospel. Gospel. Well, uh, what is it? Glad you asked. Some people will say, the gospel, oh yeah, that's the first four books of the New Testament. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the gospels, which is true. But that's not what we mean when we say the gospel. When we say the gospel, we have something in mind. Gospel, the word, means good news. But that's, if we stop there, we miss the power of the gospel. So, for us to have good news, there is bad news. That's right. There's bad news. Paul's going to deal with the bad news throughout this uh, epistle. He's going to say things like, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's going to say the wages of sin is death. These are some phrases that he uses to put weight on this idea of, uh, of sin as it relates to God. Because what we would rather do is compare sins, right? Like, mm, my sin's not as bad as yours. Ugh, I'd never do that. Uh, that's not the way God sees it. Uh, we want to look, if you want to think of it, if you can visualize this in your mind, this line of balloons, helium balloons, 
And some of them are higher than others, some are lower. And you're looking at this line of helium balloons and you might go, oh, that one's up higher, oh, that one's lower, that this one is, uh, has more helium, that has less, oh, this. And we would, uh, we would look at them compared to each other. But if we could stand over them, if we had the vantage point of above and we were looking down, we wouldn't be able to tell that, would we? We, we would just see that there are balloons there. And that's a little bit the way that sin is. We like to compare it. Oh, that one's better than that one. I mean, at least it's not. But God has this vantage point of seeing that all sin falls short of his glory and also that all have sinned. It's a different vantage point. And, and Paul recognizes that. That bad news, by the way, is called separation from God. Ultimately, that separation occurs when we graduate from this life to the next life. And in the next life, if we have not received Jesus as our Savior, if we have not entered into that faith covenant, that is an eternal separation from hell. It's not something that God appointed for you. It's something that we chose. It's actually set aside for the demons. But we choose that by not entering into faith with Christ. So, that's the bad news. It's an eternal place of separation. Nothing good is in that place. But there is good news. I mentioned the good news. What's the good news? Well, the good news is at the foundation of the world, God had a plan. And he put that plan in motion. Uh, We see that uh, early on in a prophecy uh, that God gives in the garden, that there will be enmity between the man and the woman. And uh, the man, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head, but they'll strike the heel. And, and so there's something that's set in motion there. And then Genesis 15, which we'll spend some time on in a few months, uh, identifies that actually it's God who's going to come in the flesh and that God is promising that he's going to pay the debt that the world can't pay because he's good and he's right and he's loving. Every other religion has this. You bring a sacrifice to that deity. Christianity, the deity brings the sacrifices, the sacrifice to humanity. It's different. That's the good news because it's a debt we can't pay. It's a debt that we can't pay. And Paul says that the, the way that we live that out responsibly is answering the call and following Jesus in, in the gospel. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins, the sins of humanity, To show his innocence, he conquers sin and death. He raises from the grave. And he extends life to anybody who would call on his name. And that's the good news of the gospel. He's returning again. That's the good news of the gospel. And we have been stewards. We have been given stewardship of that message by those who have gone before us. So, in this section... We, we identified that, indeed, if you've received Jesus as your Savior, you're a saint. That's good news. Hello. St. Jeff, good to see you. Right? It's good to see you. St. Melissa, good to see you. Glad you're here. Uh, that's the reality that we live in if you've received Jesus as your Savior. He thanks God for our faith. They spend time together. They recognize their, uh, their purpose. And their purpose is that they're given the gospel. As as we wrap up our time in this third point, let's look closely at verse 16 and 17 
underline the, the term righteousness when we come across it in just a few moments. It'll be an important term for us to know. In verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Who's he talking to? The Romans hiding in catacombs, hiding in the graveyard. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Wait, people are dying. Some of our family members are leaving. Some people are turning us in. Some people don't love us anymore. Yes, because of the gospel, and we're not ashamed of it. Okay, a little bit of courage. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Not identifying a a priority that Jews are better than Greeks, but rather the way that this gospel has come. The words of God came to uh, the nation of Israel, the Jews, and now have been extended to the Gentiles. We, everybody gets this message. And he's not ashamed of that message. And he lives that message out because that's a part of paying the debt that we owe. Verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Pause there. The term righteousness is used a lot of different ways in Scripture, and generally we think of it as a right behavior. In the first century, however, they had locked in on a general understanding. The general understanding comes from a religious practice that they had, and it was their offering. They would go to a box, and they would uh, give their offering into that box. That box is translated the righteousness box. What did it mean? The monies that went into that went to the poor. So what it meant was this. Somebody who has a lot, excess even, would be able to take money and give it to someone who needed help in a way that they couldn't get their own. They couldn't help themselves. They couldn't fix it. They couldn't resolve it. And by the way, death was surely coming because we're talking about a system where if you didn't have it, sometimes it, it meant death. So for someone who had extra, they were willing to give their righteousness to somebody who couldn't earn it, who couldn't make it on their own, who couldn't, uh, uh, who, who couldn't farm it, and they couldn't trade for it, they didn't have it. And this righteousness was given. So in the first century, there's a little bit of a flavor associated with this word. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed that God has enough for everybody. That God is extending something to others who can't get it on their own. That God is giving a gift that will extend life. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it, the gospel is revealed from faith for faith, as, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Those, uh, uh, those who have received this are now walking in faith, trusting God as they also give the righteousness to others. This righteousness is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the road <laughs> that Paul has given us. It's the challenge that he had the church in Rome walk in. And a part of that challenge is recognizing some answers to some of these questions. In just a moment, we'll be be transitioning to a time of communion, and I'll explain it in just a second. But what I want to identify as the worship team is coming out are these three questions one more time. How do we see ourselves? 
Do we see ourselves as like, ah, I'm just a Hoosier. I don't know much. Or do we see ourselves, do I see myself as a slave to Jesus, called by him to be sent out, to proclaim the gospel because it's a debt that I can pay to anybody, to everybody? What are we committed to do? It's not just information, but it's doing what what we know is true. And then where is our power? We recognize that the power of God is found in the gospel. The word that's used there is the word that we get the, the term dynamite from. It's like this explosive power that gets rid of obstacles. What is it for us? The world tells us we have no purpose. We're accidents. We're cosmic accidents. God tells us we actually do have a purpose. And there's a plan. And that God is inviting us into that. He's calling us. And we can pick it up and respond. So what will it be in your world? What does that look like? We're entering into a time of communion. And from my pastoral heart to you, I'm going to beg something of you. Don't let this just be a rote religious habit that we do. Please allow the Spirit of God to move in your heart and in this place.